Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a podcast about the ways tech and innovation are making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Matsko, and I'm joined by Matthew Feeney. Let's talk about the gig economy today. So I'm not a particularly early adopter. Like, I'm not the guy who stands in line for the latest Google phone or the like. Uh, Yet, I regularly rely on a new wave of gig economy services from Airbnb to Uber to Etsy. So if someone like me is already using these services just on a regular basis, I think it says something about the penetration of the gig economy into our, our everyday lives. Uh, but Matthew, let's start with definitions. Like, What distinguishes this thing called the gig economy from the regular economy? Right. Well, it's a, I think, rather unhelpful term, right? The, there will be uh, some listeners who are familiar with another term, the sh- the uh, the sharing economy, uh, which is not a great uh, term either. But broadly speaking, I think when people are talking about the, the gig economy or the sharing economy, what they're talking about is an economy in which people use assets they already have to uh, make a bit of extra money, usually on the side, hence the, uh, the use of the word gig. People like to think of it as, well, I just do this uh, on weekends or evenings. Although there are, of course, some people who are much more uh, full-time uh, than part-time. And I think what what's is exciting about it is not necessarily that it's a new great technology. Uh, it's uh, certainly exciting and interesting, but it's making very old activities much, much easier. Uh, Uber gets a lot of press because it was uh, one of the first innovators in the space and is one of the largest. But what it's doing is it's connecting people who are willing to give rides with people who need rides. And before smartphones, that was totally possible. If you landed in uh, in D.C. at Reagan Airport, it's conceivable you could walk to the nearest phone and pick up a phone book and yeah. just start calling people to find people who would uh, give you a ride in exchange for an agreed-upon fee. Or the like the college bill, uh, bulletin board, right? right. You need yeah. a ride mm-hmm. home who's mm-hmm. going through Ohio on their way to Michigan. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, most of the reason why I think uh, the gig economy is, is so popular is that it turns out that there are a lot of people who have a lot of extra stuff they're not using that often uh, and want to make a little bit of extra money. And there are a lot of people who need rides or bedroom sustain when they travel uh, and want a bit more of an authentic feel rather than a hotel. Uh, this is, of course, me mentioning Airbnb, which you alluded to earlier. And uh, those are the kind of companies and services that most people think about when they hear the term gig economy. But it's not just Airbnb or Uber, Etsy. Uh, you have companies, TaskRabbit, Lyft, people trying to set up sites where people can use skills and goods uh, for a bit of extra money. It's a really imprecise term. And in fact, either one is gig economy or sharing economy that mm-hmm. don't quite capture everything that we we know it intuitively you say that and people think of a sweep of things mm-hmm. but they don't really make sense in their own right or as a collection because like a a sharing economy may, makes sense when you're talking about airbnb in the sense that like here's a space in my house i'm not using so i'll let it out on a short-term mm-hmm. basis mm-hmm. that makes a little bit less of a sense if you call that gig economy because it's not a gig it's not like you're going and djing at your local club mm-hmm. you know one mm-hmm. night a week it's not a side hustle, you know, it's not gig work. Right. But, so like the, the terms are really slippery, but it's it's kind of, uh, it's like obscenity. You know it when you see it, right? Um, or when you hear it. it I, I agree with you though, it's an odd term because a lot of these things are not functionally different from the rest of the economy. Like in one way of framing, if you call something, uh, when, when you go and buy a pizza from a restaurant, I don't know, what, what's your favorite? 
pizza chain. I guess I could plug here uh, <laughs> Sicilian pizza from Arlington, Virginia, which is oh, nice. uh, okay. usually what I order if I'm feeling it. But if you're a DC resident, Ducini's on U Street. There we good. go. Yeah. High comes officially recommended by the league tomorrow. Yeah. No money changed hands. No money changed hands. You're, you're welcome. <laughs> so if you want to go get a nice slice of Sicilian, um, right, you go there. Why do you go there? Well, you go there because they can make better pizza than you can. Why can they make better pizza? Because they use a special pizza oven. These, you know, it could be wood-fired or it could be a, you know, commercial strength, uh, uh, you know, non-ceramic wood-fired one. But whatever they're using, they're using a special oven that can cook that pizza to perfection in a shorter amount of time. Uh, and despite DiGiorno's um, claims that it's not delivery to DiGiorno, they can generally do a better job of it at one of these specialized pizza ovens. Well, no one wants to own a pizza oven themselves. I mean, I guess some people do. You build one in the backyard or whatever. But it's a relatively niche interest because it's a high expense for something that we don't want to actually possess. We just want to temporarily use it. We want to, in effect, rent space in that pizza oven. So what pizza stores do is they they are sharing their pizza oven with the community for a price. So functionally, that makes no difference. It's not any different than Airbnb, except that we've come we're used to the one and we're not used to the other. And one had you know is organized as a corporation. One's just an individual proprietor. Right. There there are a ton of costs associated with building your own uh, pizza oven. Yeah, uh, and yeah. uh, although I will say if anyone who's been to our colleague Peter Van Doren's dinner parties knows you can make good pizza without a pizza oven. But the 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 way you framed that reminded me of uh, the, the the work done by the Duke uh, economics professor Mike Munger, who mm -hmm. likes to characterize the gig economy as a reduction in transaction costs. That you're uh, you're 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 benefiting from. Uh, it being much, much easier to uh, come to an arrangement that is beneficial to both people, yeah. right? And uh, his uh, his phrase that I really enjoy that I think puts this starkly uh, is to use the example of uh, of tools. And, and many people listening will have, of course, the, the big hulky tool set that they got once when they had to put together their kids, you know, play structure or they had to help build out a porch. And it's just sat there in the, the garage since. And, and and Munger says, you know, when you buy a power drill, you don't really want a power drill. What you want is a hole in the wall. And mm, it, mm. in a world in which, wouldn't it be more actually easier if uh, we all just had um, one power drill per block? Because that's all we really need and we could, you know, figure it out. Uh, and that's just an illustration of the reductions in transaction costs that make companies like Airbnb and Uber very popular. We want uh, the phrase that he uses that I really like is streams of service. Mm. A lot of these things we want to use them. We want to uh, have access to that service rather than owning possession of the thing per se. Mm -hmm. We want the drill to make holes. We don't want a drill just because we want a drill. Um, uh, to your point. Um, so, I mean, that's definitely true and it's it can be true of anything. So, I mean, anything if if properly conceptualized could be a part of the gig economy if you define it broadly enough, um, which again, is the, the term means uh, less than I think how it, it, it commonly gets used. It's That said, these new platforms do come with a broad set of, and we'll, we'll talk about some of these, a broad set of social, political, and legal implications. Like um, I was thinking about this from a historical perspective for a second, which is that We've moved – when it comes to producing things, doing things, working, we've moved through various modes of, of labor organization. So like you know, back in the distant past, you had 
artisans. If you wanted um, someone to make shoes, you had some guy who labored over a bench and made shoes, a cobbler. Uh, we moved to cottage industry where you scale up. Like usually it's the family in the in the home unit. They're all working in the cobbler production process and they're regulated by family ties. That's how you organize the labor because you can trust family in theory more than you can strangers. Well, then you move to factory assembly lines. Now strangers can coordinate labor under the oversight of a boss and you know, through mass production and, and assembly lines can churn out. And each of these comes with productive efficiencies uh, to Munger's point, right? We're increasing efficiency, thinking of new ways of organizing labor to produce stuff to meet consumer demand. And this is just the next evolution of that. It does come with implications. So why don't we dig into some of those? Uh, one of the questions is, so if you are driving for Uber, what are you? I mean, are you an employee? Are you a contractor? Who do you work for? Uber will say that you are an independent contractor and you work for yourself. Mm -hmm. Many of Uber's critics will say, no, you're an employee and that Uber only wants you classified as a contractor because uh, there are certain benefits to a uh, there are certain benefits to Uber because of that. If you if you employ someone, that comes with uh, associated responsibilities and obligations. Uh, insofar as uh, contributions for for healthcare, certain uh, certain other benefits covering um, um, unemployment and and all these other things. And uh, for independent contractors, that's not the case. And this has been, I think, one of, at least in, in the United States, one of the most contentious debates about the rise of what people are calling the gig economy. I want to preface this by, by pointing out, though, that uh, this is a uh, certainly an interesting legal question, but I, I do think that oftentimes people in this space are offering uh, solutions in search of a problem. Uh, there's a lot of polling uh, and, and studies that have been done that suggest that most people, at least in the ride-sharing business, are, are pretty happy with the flexibility that comes with being an independent contractor. Because if you're a contractor, you're flexible. You can drive whenever you want. You could do just weekends. You could just do evenings. You can drive where you want. Uh, the the important part about being an, an employer-employee relationship is a degree of control that the employer has over you. Uh, so we're here at, at Cato. You know, the, the bosses upstairs can say, you will be here 9 to 5.30 on Monday to Friday, and your employment is contingent on doing these things yeah. to this degree of quality. Uh, and we don't work for ourselves, right? We uh, and, and that's a very different kind of relationship to what Uber drivers have, uh, which is if they feel like it, they can drive. Um, if they don't feel like it, they don't have to. However, I, I think it's uh, worth pointing out that uh, there are potentially arguments on the the other side. You'll, you'll hear people saying, well, uh, when Uber does an, adver uh, uh, an advertising campaign that tells drivers to drive with us or yeah. has an associated brand and is um, outfitting people with a particular technology and uh, is offering financial incentives for certain kinds of behavior, they're looking a bit more like mm -hmm. uh, a bit more like employees. What what you have seen are some cases that have dealt with this, and and one of my favorite was a a case out in California where uh, the judge in the early stages of this case said uh, said in this case which dealt with uh, Lyft drivers whether they were employees or contractors, and the the judge saying well the jury here is going to have to decide whether 
I forget the exact quote, but saying you know whether this square shaped thing should fit in a round hole or a triangle hole, right? That there's this new uh, butchering the quote, but that was the gist of it. Saying you can you can make arguments for both sides, and um, it's not really appropriate. But as I said earlier, there seemed to be I think widespread uh, data suggesting that the people working in this gig economy are pretty happy. There were the number of people calling to be employees is relatively minor. Uh, they're very very popular. Uh, and I actually think a lot of the complaints that people have about the status of independent contractors um, rise from uh, government interference in healthcare markets, in benefits markets, uh, which is a lot of the complaint, right? Uh, but that's uh, perhaps a, a different topic to discuss. I, I think on your point about um, satisfaction among gig economy workers, one of the things that, that's telling, and we'll take just the ride-sharing business for a sector for a second. Um, the complaint is often between people who currently drive taxis in major cities like New York City and, and Washington. Uh, so the people who own the cars and the taxi medallions, which is the, you know, a lot of cities have issued um, a limited number of medallions or functionally licenses for X number of cars. They wanted to limit, keep the supply of taxis uh, artificially low for a variety of reasons. Those medallions become very, um, have become very expensive over time, though less so since Uber uh, and Lyft entered the market. Um, the people who own those medallions have a vested interest. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, of course, they're not going to like competition because that drives down the benefit of that thing they've spent a lot of time and money purchasing. But what's telling is that drivers, when they have a choice, they're not banging down the door to go drive for medallion holders, which typically are much more traditionally organized. There's a guy who owns a taxi cab company who owns next num X number of medallions, and then his drivers are employees, and they have to work in defined shifts. You can't just be like, this week I'm driving two hours. Next week I'm driving 20 hours. No, no, no. It's, it's more traditionally organized. People aren't banging down the doors to drive as employee drivers for traditional taxi cab companies. They're banging down the doors to sign up for Uber and Lyft, where their share of the fare can actually be higher than the share they would get driving. Unless you own your own medallion, it's actually more profitable to drive for Uber than it is for the taxi cab company most of the time. Um, so, I mean, people are voting with their feet. So you have a choice. You have a choice as a worker. Do I want to go work for the taxi cab company as an employee or do I want to go work for, as an independent contractor for Uber and Lyft? And in massive numbers, gig economy workers are opting for the one over the other. I mean, the proof's in the pudding, mm -hmm. right? Well, and there's also competition between these firms. So Uber and Lyft have to compete with each other uh, because if you're if you're willing to drive around uh, drive around people for for money um, using a phone. You can use Uber or Lyft, yeah, and yeah. Uh, Uber and Lyft would prefer that you use their service, not their competitors. Sure. Yeah. And uh, so that's a good thing. Uh, but but you're right to point out that the some of the complaints about the gig economy, of course, don't come from just a minority of gig economy workers. It's coming from market incumbents who are being whacked by this, and uh, the the impact has been pretty severe in some places. Uh, the the medallions you mentioned in. New York, I think at one point peaked over a million dollars each, and they've just cratered in value since then. Yeah, pouring out for Michael Cohen, who among his other financial mistakes, oh yeah, that's right, the yeah. value of his medallions, he's lost millions of dollars. Sure, well they're very valuable. <laughs> yeah, uh, and that has had. Uh, it would be silly to ignore the impact that has had on taxi drivers. You know, it's it's not been um, 
not been a rosy few years, that's for sure. Uh, and some of the uh, strategies have been rather interesting. Some uh, are, are perhaps more subtle. My, my favorite, most blatant uh, regulation around the world we've seen was in uh, in, in Barcelona, where uh, the the one time I not the one time, but a notable time when Uber said, "All right, we're out." When this is screw this was <laughs> where, where Barcelona passed a. a a, a regulation that said that rideshare drivers have to must wait a, at least 15 minutes between accepting a ride and picking someone up, which was just sort of just <laughs> naked, you know, uh, protectionism of a certain industry. Right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's uh, but these kind of efforts, though, I think are uh, are short term. Yeah. Uh, the, the the fact is that uh, these these services are popular. And I think actually they're very popular in virtue of the fact that they're very difficult to define. Mm. Uber and others in the gig economy space, I think, made the calculation, well, we'll bet that if we just parachute into a place, people will fall in love with us mm-hmm. and it will be difficult to dislodge. Uh, they didn't ask permission. It's this classic kind of permissionless innovation that uh, Adam Thier of Mercatus likes, where uh, it's a uh, – Adam would like this too because uh, it's his phrase – but this born free, right? There wasn't a gig economy commission – uh, when Uber arrived or the department of the gig economy, they were just able to to get in, which wouldn't have happened if they wanted to set up a competitive taxi service. It would have been a whole different um, whole different thing. Uh, but I think regardless of a lot of these regulatory headaches, uh, the, these, these companies, or at least the technology, is definitely here to stay. Uh, on uh, another um, similar situation happened with the hotel industry lobby, which is not a fan of Airbnb. I mean, it's happening basically in each sector of the gig economy. There's been pushback from market incumbents who don't like the competitive pressure because they want to protect their profits. They want to extract as much profit from consumers as possible. So they want to rig the rules to prevent competition. We call this rent-seeking behavior in economics. Um, The hotel industry, also in New York City, um, they're passing a variety of legislation raising essentially taxes on Airbnb hosts, Um, attempts to license and limit the number of Airbnb hosts allowed, all of which has been bankrolled by the hotel lobbying Mm -hmm. uh, lobbying Mm -hmm. groups. And this has been true around the country because they don't want individual people renting out their rooms. They want want to build special boxes with hundreds of rooms that everyone is forced to go to when they come visit New York City and pay an arm and a leg to do so. So, um, I mean, I, I myself, I did some research uh, for for my uh, dissertation in in New York City at Columbia University, and the difference between a hotel room and an Airbnb room, where you're actually encountering real interesting people, it's nicer because it's someone's house, a room in someone's house. It was it was like a factor of three. It was three times right. less expensive. So it's no wonder the hotel industry isn't a fan of that. I, I mean, you can't blame them per se. Mm-hmm. They're looking out for their own best interests, but that's different than the best interests either of consumers. Or of the gig workers mm-hmm. involved, I find that there's a variety of opinion about Airbnb versus hotels. At least walking the corridors of of Cato, some of our colleagues are big, big fans of hotels, and some really, really don't like hotels. Yeah. Um, I'm very much on the not big fan of hotel side of this because I actually like being able to visit a city uh, and. In the sense that I get to walk the steps of people who actually live there and know the city and feel it. If you visit a city, oftentimes for work, 
the 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 really uh the normal track track record of events right is um airplane airport taxi hotel room conference room hotel room taxi back to the airport and you don't really get a lot of time to see the actual place but if you have an airbnb you're actually in a local's house uh you yeah. actually see much more local architecture local you know cafes local museums and all that sort of stuff you're walking around uh but for people who want you know the bed made every day they want you know to know exactly where the restaurant is downstairs then a hotel's fine and and to your earlier point let's just see what people prefer i, I don't think airbnb necessarily kills hotels no, because hotels here stay, some yeah. people love hotels and hotels the one the one uh, area where airbnb can't compete with hotels is for conferences and conventions and yeah. things like that which yeah. are a big part of hotel income so so uh, I'm not I, – I don't think hotels are going to go the way of the yeah. dinosaurs anytime soon. No, definitely not. Well, and they're not as protected as, say – I mean, taxi medallions in, in urban centers are a particularly protected, heavily regulated economy in the way that hotels, while still regulated and taxed, and it's not as, as true. So I think – in other words, the moat isn't as big. And so hotels have been more responsive, a little more guided by the market than, uh, than taxi medallions. Uh, the other thing I was going to note uh, on your – uh, Adam Thierer's permissionless innovation point, which uh, shout out to uh, an episode we did a few a month or so ago with Adam himself to talk about the talk about the subject um, is, uh, and this is something you've talked about too as well, Matthew, in previous episodes. But this precautionary principle that guides so much of regulation. Mm-hmm. So if you're a government regulator, if you del- if you roll out a new policy, so let's say someone actually does come and ask. They don't do the Uber, Lyft, Airbnb thing and ask forgiveness rather than the permission. They come and ask permission first. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you approve it and something goes wrong, anything goes wrong, you get blamed. Mm-hmm. If something goes right, no one even really notices. So the incentives are all on avoiding any kind of risk. Mm-hmm. So take every possible precaution before you roll something out. And that tends to be the way uh, uh, regulators think. It's just the kind of baked in incentives. Whereas, and this actually shows up pretty heavily with the uh, FAA. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. With the Federal Aviation Administration. Administration yeah. right? Mm-hmm. We actually had a, I'm trying to remember the panel. We had a panel here at Cato where it was some guys from the startup where they wanted to allow private pilots. Oh, flight now. Flight These now. guys, yeah. The Flight Now guys, yep, yeah. Yep. And the Wingly is the, I think, the French or Great Britain well, version. Flight Now was sometimes called the the Uber for the skies, which I, I think they didn't particularly they didn't like. like yeah. but, <laughs> uh, but but exactly right. There's uh, a, a an innovation that emerges, right, which is yeah. – um, it's kind of like what you, you mentioned earlier with the, the dorm room cork boards. It's yeah. Around airports across the country, there are literally these cork boards, right, yeah. where people can declare that I'm going to travel from this airport to another. Yeah. Uh, which is fine unless you're doing it over the internet. Yeah. Uh, which is – It's somehow that get... day was like if it's on the cork board, we're cool. Yes. But as soon as you try to put it online, it's now terrible. And that became a, <laughs> a massive uh, problem, yeah. right? And, uh, and they, they lost. I mean they're – They lost. So it went up to the um, the Supreme Court, uh, I believe, declined to hear the case and that was the end of that. But uh, your your mention of the precautionary principle I think is, uh, is important uh, because – it would be a mistake to make it sound as if that this has been a total it's been smooth sailing for all these companies uh it these companies have have made mistakes uh, i think and and they've learned along the way which 
at least from a libertarian perspective, is something we should expect. Uh, we yeah. we don't we would never have been in the position to say this is going to be perfect. This is going to be great. Everyone's going to be happy with this. Uh, and there have been lessons learned. Uh, I don't want to hop on on them too much, uh, but they're the biggest and they're in the news the most, I suppose, Uber. But there was there was an incident in the early years where an Uber driver had accepted a ride on the phone, uh, but before getting to a passenger, uh, hit and killed uh, a young girl mm-hmm. and, and injured her brother and mother. And this, of course, raised important questions about liability and insurance. And at the time, Uber's insurance policy didn't cover drivers who were at this stage of we've accepted the ride, but we don't have any passengers in the car yet. Only covered um, when they were in the car. Right. right. Uh, so this has now been addressed and uh, there was uh, there was a settlement. But that's that's the way we think. It's sort of amazing that no one did think of that uh, at Uber headquarters, that it's conceivable that this might happen. Uh, but you learn. Uh, and the, the the approach to technology policy that uh, we've discussed here before is one where uh, we accept that there are going to be potential costs to new technologies and there will be disruptions, but uh, we trust in processes that will address them along the way. Uh, and we make sure to keep in mind that while there might be costs, the benefits often outweigh them. Yeah. Well, and uh, to return to something we've we've already touched on, the ways in which so there's a cost and a benefit, I think, from a societal sense, which is, hey, we're going to have people driving on the roads who – and they might – they're going to create externalities. They're going to log more hours on the roads. They're more likely to hit someone, a pedestrian. Who is going to address those those externalities, right? Well, we need to make sure that the, their insurance covers that, right? Like these things all cr- generate negative externalities. The, the question is, well, do the – the positive externalities outweigh the negative ones, right? Is the social utility greater than than the downsides? And I mean, in general here, I think we, we we're inclined to say yes, that this is of net benefit, that um, people being able to let out rooms in their house decreases a little bit um, problems of, of uh, population density, mm. right? Rather than zoning a special place for a new big building, a big hotel building, let's spread those 100 people who would have stayed in the hotel building across 100 pre-existing homes, right? That's that's less construction, less expense, less environmental cost. That's worth some of the disruption that comes, some of the negative externalities. Um, on an individual level, though, to something you mentioned earlier, um, workers themselves do seem to like working for the gig economy. Not all. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. obviously there's going to be folks who who aren't aren't happy, but the this a lot of the animus as we've already mentioned comes from folks from market incumbents, from others who have a vested interest in labor situations staying the way they currently are conforming to a traditional model rather than from workers themselves. And I think you you mentioned scheduling flexibility, but I want to kind of return to that because it's it's something that's a really big deal. Like if you're thinking about this as a traditional model, it's trying to shove everyone into a certain kind of employment with the ideal being a 40-hour-a-week, give or take, full-time employment job with full benefits. Our economic system was kind of structured in the mid-20th century to try to make as many people look like that as possible. It might have made sense at that point in time but that also comes with downsides. And you mentioned some of them, which is that you can't schedule – like at Cato, I can't say I don't want to come in 9 to 5.30. In general, I have to conform to those to those scheduling expectations. 
um, this becomes a problem for lo lots of different communities of people. Like if I am a um, – this is often the problem for um, uh, parents who have just had a kid, right? They would like to be able to restructure their time so they're working not just Mondays through Fridays, mm -hmm. 9 to 5. Mm -hmm. So they can make up a day on the weekend or they can work well, 2 to 10, whatever it may be. They want scheduling flexibility but because our – uh, economic sh labor structure doesn't conform, you know, doesn't kind of allow that flexibility. They drop out entirely mm. often. Mm. And and so I think you can see this in the gig economy space. Um, like I, I have a number of, uh, this is anecdotal, but I have a number of friends who um, they're underemployed. They're staying at home for a time with their kids. Uh, maybe once upon a time, they would have signed up for one of those multi-level marketing scams, you know, to sell, I don't know, pedal, whatever, essential oils or, or some shit, but, um, but instead they decide to, uh, now they, they, I have a friend who sells t-shirts on Etsy. Mm, mm -hmm. They drive a few hours whenever, I mean, if their kid gets mm -hmm. sick, they don't drive at all, but most weeks they might drive here or there for Uber or for Lyft. It's a, uh, that is an upgrade for their lives. It might not look like mm -hmm. the, the, the model, the 40 hour work week, nine to five kind of model that we built our economy and our tax structure around, but it's making their lives better in a very real practical sense. One of the aspects of the gig economy that, that I really appreciate is that it's um, just another reinforcement of, you know, humans are awesome. In this sense, yeah. which has just been much easier to find that in, in, in the following way, that uh, very few people are, are defined by their work, right? So people here uh, at Cato work on policy and we have talented policy analysts and uh, an audio crew, uh, thanks Tess, and uh, and a bunch of others, but that's not all we do. And and everyone in their lives goes around to and meets people, and you can find someone who might be, you know, they're a history professor, but you know what, they're a really good cook, or <laughs> yeah, they actually right. know how to like uh, program, or they they make t-shirts or or whatever. And uh, I think it's great that people feel like there are now avenues where they can use some of their spare time and talents that don't um, in the past wouldn't have necessarily given them any yeah. financial benefit now actually can do that. Uh, and and one of the things I'm very optimistic about is that, that gig economy innovations will actually make it harder for people not just in uh, – not just – taxi the taxi industry or hotels to to claim their position uh it will be much harder for them to do that thanks to gig economy rating systems mm -hmm. right because so much of the protections that uh, a lot of market incumbents enjoy are thanks to licensing and uh which which are themselves based on safety and in a world where the majority of adults have smartphones and connect and there's a record of where we went and ratings it seems harder and harder to justify a lot of the licensing regimes that make entry into certain markets difficult, whether it's uh, if you're a barber or if you're a chef or, or uh, an interior designer based on wherever you, what state you're in. Uh, I remember years ago in, in England, I was watching a documentary about uh, uh, it was a, a British uh, celebrity chef, Jamie Oliver, and he was going to America and it was this big documentary on American food. And he walked into... Just Americans, you're all fat. Right. Well, he was <laughs> a bit more generous than that. And uh, well, he, he was he's in New York City, right? And he hears about the so-called underground restaurants. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he wants to visit one of these Peruvian uh, underground restaurants. 
And the it's a really interesting piece of footage because when he visits this underground Peruvian restaurant, uh, the camera ensures that no one in this house has their face revealed, <laughs> right? Because they're engaged in um, legally questionable activity here. Yeah. And I think like, any time that you see a situation where someone who is making food in their own home for their own guests in exchange for some money feels as if they can't be on a documentary, uh, something's gone really wrong. Yeah. Uh, and there's no reason why, given a rating system that uh, we couldn't provide a degree of safety uh, and accountability in a, a world where people want to do that sort of stuff. Well, there's the, um, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the uh, Institute for Justice. Again, no money changed hands for this promotion. <laughs> but, I mean, their battle against occupational licensing mm. is something yeah. I fully support. And there's layers of ludicrousness. I mean, the the kind of the top level is stuff like, you know, African hair braiding and, you know, co cosmetology and interior design. Because, yeah, okay. like, the idea on. that that has some sort of public health and safety interest transparently thin no we get why those those occupational licensing regimes get passed because of lobbying groups that lobby state legislatures to prevent competition so they can limit the number of providers and jack prices you know that's why it exists i mean but as you go down the, the tier you know to i don't know medical doctors and uh, you know, other there are there is a kind of a legitimate public health and safety you can have an argument about whether or not that's a better best way of accomplishing that or not, or if there's alternative means like rating systems. Um, but I mean, there's a whole category and a growing segment of, of jobs that are occupationally licensed. That's just ludicrous. Yeah, absolutely. I would add though, that even when you're talking about doctors and licensing, uh, there's, a potential for these innovations to help the status quo. So yeah. e let's say we accept, right, that, that you should get a license to be a doctor, right? That might be a podcast for another time, yeah, but let's yeah. just accept it. Yeah. Uh, there are still regulations about where you can practice and what laws you might be violating if you give advice uh, to people in different jurisdictions. Uh, with Skype and, and other technologies, it's possible for doctors and nurses to uh, actually be via camera in yeah. an operating room and to give telemedicine, a, to yeah. telemedicine right? Uh, in some jurisdictions, legally questionable, uh, yeah. questionable, and that you can keep licensing of medical doctors, right, uh, on principle, and still accept that there should be room for um, yeah. ratings technologies and uh, new tech being used in operating theaters and hospitals. Yeah, it's it's actually kind of remarkable the comparing the gig economy, the way in which it empowers consumer choice to identify who's good at what they do and who isn't. And then, and then rate it so everyone can benefit from the wisdom of the market about these providers, uh, these employees, or not employees, these contractors, <laughs> these contractors, these workers. Um, contrast that to sectors like medicine, where you know there there are some rating systems that are really uh, just not well developed compared to what we're talking about for Uber or Lyft or whatever. I mean, the idea that you would occupational licensing the basic problem is that all it tells you is that one group gave thousands of people a seal of approval but ranking the relative ability each has in i don't know the surgical theater how happy you know their customers are after they meet with the doctor how responsive they are none of that information is captured in an occupational license license almost zero um having a rating system where you say well Yes, they're qualified. They're not going to kill anyone, probably, in the surgery. But 
This one did a better job of responding to my concerns, of answering my questions. There should be some kind of, you know, system that allows that that can at least be layered on to even a occupational licensing regime. I think it was our colleague Trevor who had that uh, that line, you know, what do you call the guy who came last in medical school? Doctor, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it's, um, it's difficult. Like, And rating systems are a good way to get a gradient, right? Of, yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah. that that's, that's valuable. And I'm sure people listening are used to ratings becoming part of their lives bit by bit. I didn't really notice. There wasn't a I woke up and like, aha moment, we live in a ratings world now. But uh, I don't remember the first time that when I was in a strange city, I might check out Google Maps and see the ratings of the nearby restaurants or cafes. Uh, I don't remember first doing it, but now I can't remember not doing it, yeah, if that makes yeah, sense. It's yeah. just a thing that um, has become normal. Uh, there's, Of course, you, you have to rely on a lot of people engaging in it for it to be valuable information. Yeah, uh, there's yeah. uh, When I lived in D.C., uh, there was an, a nearby, well, a place that liked to brand itself as some sort of British pub, right? And I won't. And so they did fish and chips. And uh, as many people might know, a traditional side for British fish and chips is uh, mushy peas. Mm. And I remember reading <laughs> a, a, a rating once. Uh, the, the old joke was at that place that there was a rating once where someone said, you know, it's a good place, but the guacamole is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you have, to, yeah, yeah. you have to rely on there being a lot of information for the rating system, be reflective of close to reality. Right. Yeah. But this actually benefits. I mean, it's an odd way in which – in the gig economy, workers can actually be rewarded for their labor, for their hard work uh, in a way that workers in tradi the traditional economy and traditional sectors of the economy often can't. So like if you're a really good doctor, the mar like it, you're really responsive to your, to your patients. You're not really going to capture much of the reward of that extra effort you put in because no one's really going to know. Word of mouth is slow. The way an insurance system works doesn't encourage that kind of rewarding that kind of behavior. Whereas if you're a gig economy worker and you put that extra effort in, it's reflected in your rating. It like encourages you to work better and harder and do more for your customers. So it's good for customers. It's good for workers. It rewards the best workers as well. Um, so in an interesting way, the gig economy is actually, that should be the rest of the non-gig economy should be looking to that as an example of how they can change and reform, even if you keep the traditional employment structure. Um, learn from the gig economy. Find ways you can implement some of those approaches even in the, the non-gig economy. Um, on, on the final note here, I'd like to talk a bit about, okay, so we're broadly pro-gig economy. We think it's going to benefit workers themselves, customers. It's going to provide more competition. So we're on the, on the pro side of the ledger. Um, there are going to be lots of social, cultural, economic, legal implications of the rise of the gig economy though. So I want to talk about like as libertarians, how do we respond to that disruption? Like what do we need to change in our system to address those consequences, the unintended consequences of the rise of the gig economy? Well, I didn't know we were doing a whole lot of podcast after this one. So to to maybe take uh, the Sparknote version of this, I yeah. think the first thing the, – the approach that libertarians should have is that uh, a lot of these debates offer opportunities outside of policy areas that seem obvious. So for example, the, the discussions about ride-sharing versus taxis isn't just a discussion about transportation policy and infrastructure even. These kind of debates provide opportunity for us to think about the complaints that people have which are legitimate a lot of time. If you're someone who is 
banked on your retirement being funded by a taxi medallion that is plummeted in value. You know, that's a real problem for people. Uh, but we should make steps to point out that uh, we probably shouldn't have a situation where you have to buy permission from the state to drive a taxi, one. And secondly, a lot of the uh, complaints about the lack of benefits and protections and all this uh, is more a function of a really bad welfare system that we have at the moment and this ludicrous situation where healthcare is attached to employment. The These debates provide opportunity for widespread uh, discussions uh, on, on all sorts of policies, not just transportation infrastructure, but also welfare, healthcare. And I think we should also be sure to raise uh, the gig economy uh, up in debates about uh, permissionless innovation and other technologies down the road. Uh, and I, I think it's a good way to view uh, view debates about safety, about uh, assurances of, of providers and, and uh, things like that. Uh, because debates about occupational licensing aren't going anywhere anytime soon. And even – and there will always be people who have the safety – uh, the safety concerns, there will always be the market incumbents who look somewhat ridiculous, especially when it's florists and uh, eyebrow, you know, whatever. You know, that that looks somewhat ridiculous. But there are going to be people saying, well, what about restaurants? You know, you could poison someone. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You could, you know, that, and, and those are the kind of discussions where I think uh, the gig economy offers interesting answers. Uh, so the, the, the short version is uh, it's much bigger than yeah. – yeah just the gig economy. I actually think this is something that we can take a page from the um, kind of, I don't know, the farther reaches of the progressive left um, that folks like AOC and Bernie Sanders are good at, which is they propose a specific policy change. Um, and generally it's a change that we're, we, we don't favor uh, over here at L.org. But what they're good at is making it not doing that in isolation. It's not just saying we should reform uh, 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 predatory lending by capping interest rates or whatever the most recent proposal was. They're not talking about that in isolation. They use that to call for a broader social tra social transformation. Then this is why in order to truly address this, we both make this change and we create a uh, you know, more uh, equitable socialist uh, political economic system. The same thing's true for us when we call for like it's not just about occupational licensing. It's not just about classifying gig economy workers as contractors versus employees. It's a chance for us to give the cast this big vision of ways in which we need to transform American society, American economy, and American politics. Um, a lot of these things we're talking about are, I mean, this, this is a it, it's a throwback to this factory model of employment that gets set in stone in the first half and by the mid 20th century, it's kind of part of our system, which is that, look, you're going to be working for someone else. There's a boss class. There's uh, employees of that, of the corporation. Uh, we want to make sure they have all these things that we think all people should have health insurance and, you know, retirement benefits, et cetera. And we assume this is the way the economy is always going to look. Therefore, we're going to lock that in regulatory stone. So you get your your company, as long as you're a traditional employer, gets tax benefits for providing those things. And in fact, we're not going to give them to you, those benefits, unless you work in that traditional factory style model of employment. Mm -hmm. And that is not aging well. It made sense then, possibly. It makes less and less sense today. So if we can open that up... Um, 
it's not just good for the gig economy. It's also good for uh, individual in general. It can be good for our, our social order. So, I mean, you mentioned one of these ways like health insurance, the idea that you can only get health insurance through your employer or not only. That's the predominant way our system is designed to push people to get in, health insurance through their employers. Mm-hmm. Locks people into jobs they don't want. Locks people into schedules that they wish were more flexible, locks people into locations they don't really want to live or school districts they really don't want their kids in. Um, Make that portable, make that flexible, right? Make that something you can carry with you. That's both good for gig economy workers, but it's good for workers in general. Well, one of the, that your your last comment reminded me of, uh, one of the uh, benefits of having a father who is a classics professor is you'll sometimes get unsolicited unsolicited emails, which will include <laughs> interesting quotes. And and over the last couple of months preparing um, for work on this issue, uh, I was thinking about something my father sent me, which was a, a quote from the Roman historian Sollust, who was quoting this a supposed letter from uh, King Mithridates to the king of Persia, right, where he wrote something like, few men desire freedom, they actually just want just masters, right? Mm-hmm. That, uh, And I think he might have been onto something in the political sense, but <laughs> yeah. actually, yeah. In, in our economies, I don't think he could have been more wrong, that mm-hmm. actually people don't want, they want to be their own masters oftentimes. Uh, and that's uh, something that the gig economy uh, affords them, which I think is something libertarians, but people across the political spectrum should should applaud. All right. I think we'll end it there Uh, for our listeners. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week. And until then, be well. Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.